We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Architects have a lot to consider when they design a building. Every building that an architect designs is one of a kind. It's not purely for their portfolio, not purely for the client, and it's not purely for them. Architects have to walk a thin line when they're designing. They want their client to have something that's as unique and individual as the client is, but not so unique that it negatively affects the community that the site belongs to. They design for the whole community with each project they take on because they know people will be affected by their design beyond the people who commission it. Whether a building is making a very clear reference to the other buildings nearby, or is something that no one has ever seen before, that building is working to meet the needs of both the people inside it and out. When you start to look for it, architecture is everywhere, and it's the stage on which we play out our lives. It doesn't matter whether we're working in it, living in it, or resting in it, it's part of who we are and our memories. I'm Daniel Moore, and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we've asked architects from around the country to tell us what they think architecture's role is in culture. Is architecture informed by culture, or does it inform culture? When architects start studying, they quickly learn that they can't design whatever they want. There are building and planning codes to think about that are all in place to protect the public. One of the first lessons an architect gets is whether their designs either fit in with their surrounding buildings or context, or if they stand out as a bespoke icon. This issue of whether a building's design is iconic or contextual is fundamental because it addresses something that's being assessed with every town planning application that gets sent into council. Damien Madigan from Madigan Architecture breaks down how architecture can be seen when we start looking at it with fresh eyes. I had a discussion with a, a first-year student last week who was working on a little design project for a, a, what should be a fairly simple pavilion project, and he was doing something that was quite neoclassical, mm-hmm. which, which, which is fine. But w- the way he was designing, he wasn't giving himself um, much of a chance to explore some of the um, sort of structural and material issues that we were asking for in the assignment. And I was pointing out that to him, you know, this sort of rigid symmetry. I'm going somewhere with this. Um, yeah. <laughs> with the sort of rigid symmetry he was dealing with, um, he didn't really have much much content in the design to be able to explore some different material choices and structural principles and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I asked him what, why, and every, every iteration he did was just this sort of variation on a theme of a classical um, uh, a rotunda. And I said, so just tell me why you're drawn to this, this form, this design. And he said, oh look, I just really like old things. I don't like new architecture. And if I, if I um, do it this way, it'll be timeless. And I said, well, let's just, pick up on this idea of timeless architecture. I said, what you're designing is, you know, to my eye, a kind of 19th or even 18th century thing. And I said, so that's very much of its time. I said, you know, you're not, you know, you're creating something that's rather than being timeless, it's very much embedded in a particular period and particular style. And I explained to him, um, what, if, what if we put people in clothing of that same era you know mm. would we expect yeah. women to wear corsets and and you know bustles and would men 
be expected to wear stiff fronted shirts mm-hmm. and and ties or cravats and top hats and things like that. And of course he said, well, no, no. And I said, well, can you say it's a sort of similar thing with architecture? Architecture is a measure of its time and of a culture's um, place in that time. And he could start to understand it when we looked at fashion. And I think people get fashion, but they don't necessarily get architecture sitting as, a, as an indicator of time yeah. all, all the time. So I think, you know, the, the architect's role in projecting or, or sustaining cultural identities mm-hmm. in some respect is about being able to respond to current times and then let the architecture develop naturally as a cultural mm-hmm. marker. And I think good architecture that responds well will uh, will mm-hmm. do that. That was Damien Madigan from Madigan Architecture, based in South Australia. When an architect starts a project, they usually consider what makes the place where they're about to design a building. Where is it? Who are the people? What do they do? The projects that come through an architect's door might be in areas that require sensitive considerations beyond the cultural norms in Australia's larger cities and suburbs. Justin Carrier and Stephen Posmus talk about some of their projects where they have to carefully consider the cultures they are designing within and what is the architect's role in these locations. But first, they point out the responsibility of an architect, which goes beyond the basic brief of designing a building. Well, I think it largely goes down to the, I suppose, the profession of the architect in a real kind of broad terms and that the architect has uh, sort of an implicit responsibility beyond even their client so I think just before we even start like just the role of the architect is so broad and has an implicit advocacy as part of that profession so I think the architect is just kind of critical as being you know one of the leads in in a team and and understanding that he is part of a team or um, as a you know as a role so I think, and working both sides, architecture and landscape, it's um, you know really critical that the that the architect, um, I, I suppose, they sees themselves as, a, as an advocate. And here they compare two very different locations where they've been able to work. I've done a lot of work in South Southeast Asia, and also we've been doing some work in Broome, as well. And I think there's in Southeast Asia there is with the architect is is very much. Uh, a very prominent, respected kind of position and has a, a lot of authority um, by client, by everyone, really. It's, I suppose it's a, you know, almost a traditional kind of, kind of role. So I think it's really incumbent on, on the architect to, to make the most of that. And it's quite amazing how a lot of architects in South, Southeast Asia, particularly the younger ones, are really kind of sort of embed themselves in the culture. And, and take on kind of the local traditions and craft. So recently now we're doing some work up in Broome and um, in, it's largely kind of connected with the, the Yaru people. So um, we're doing some work at a high school and sort of part of that brief is sort of a welcoming place for connection, for kind of, you know, yarning circles and, and how to foster those kind of connections. So for us and for the architect, it's that sense of, of being an advocate that's a really important aspect to the project, but also at the same time recognising that, you know, it, it's for you to, to assist and, and to advocate for, but ultimately as a team, you need to bring on board people and take a step back and, 
um, really let others find their voice mm. as well and, and to be able to contribute. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of buildings, I mean, there's buildings per se, but then there's also the spaces around buildings and, you know, how does that, how do those spaces encourage sort of interaction between sort of or civic, sort of the civicness of a building, I suppose, and how that um, might encourage sort of more public sort of interactions and, you know, you talk about culture, you know, how would that culture may sort of express itself. But, you know, having a range of sort of scenarios or spaces where, you know, it can be the macro scale or the micro scale, you know, depending on, you know, where you're designing and that sort of thing. But I think, I mean, in terms of building, it's like, you know, buildings are buildings, but then there's all the bits around it, you know, and and I think you you talk about Southeast Asia and... Well, that's our interest largely, isn't it? Seeing mm. those those cultural connections and Mm. engagements as being the spaces. That was Justin Carrier and Stephen Posmus from Kappa in WA. Once an architect has identified what the existing culture or context of an area is, they can start to make choices about what they'd like to design there. Maybe it should be something that looks just like what's already on the street, or maybe it should be something that hasn't been represented before. But making that decision is not as straightforward as it sounds. To illustrate this point, Andrew Maynard from Austin Maynard Architects talks through how he considers a project when he's taking on a new client. You know, when I, when I was studying, it was um, Kenneth Frampton and critical regionalism. And, you know, studying in Tassie too, we had people like Rory Spence really drilling down on critical regionalism, on how do you design in place. And then that, that was all a reaction to the modernist international style that design was sort of universal. And then coming out of that education into the internet age, where everything is everywhere instantaneously, I probably changed my tune. Like it might be controversial, but I don't think cultural representation through architecture is as important as it may have once been. I think it's about sensitivity and understanding people and place, and that's I think addressed in each individual project. I think we can definitely do it wrong, clumsily, badly, definitely without sensitivity. But I mean. You know, the other thing that was happening while I was studying as well was postmodernism. So this idea that we can just whack an icon on on a crappy modernist building and call it architecture, uh, I find that really problematic as well. But I guess my my response to that question is that it's just it's really it's tricky, it's difficult. It's, it's about each individual project, and I don't have you know as a as a designer I don't have hard and fast um, ways of dealing with any any job. I always wonder how clients take that when I first talk to them because I want to understand the problem. I want to understand the place. I want to understand the people before I start drawing too much. Because otherwise you do cut and paste, I think, cut and paste from previous ideas. So hopefully the cultural element comes out of those early discussions in the brief. But if somebody, if a client's looking for a hard and fast response from me on, on, on how we deal with culture, then I I don't have one, and I don't think it's right to have one. You know, if somebody asked me to go and design a building in the Northern Territory, um, that would be great fun. Uh, but I would stop, look, and listen <laughs> before doing anything, and work out who the stakeholders are and what's important to them. So it's probably, it's probably like our work anyway. That you know, hopefully, when people look at our work, they they see it as really eclectic, and that's because we're dealing with unique responses of place and people anyway. So I think the cultural question would come out of that. It would hopefully be reflected in our building through the discussions of what's important to people within a certain culture. That was Andrew Maynard from Austin Maynard Architects based in Melbourne. Engaging an architect to design your home is a really exciting experience because part of their brief is to design your dream home. 
Part of this process includes designing for the way you live or would like to live, and this can be greatly influenced by people's culture and heritage. Rod Simpson, the Environmental Commissioner for the Greater Sydney Commission, is a member of the Architects Institute, Landscape Institute and the Planning Institute and works primarily these days as an urbanist. Here he tells us about designing a home for people with particular cultural needs within the regulatory system that Australian architects have to design within. I'll never forget being in a sales office where a young uh, Indian couple came in and said that they were interested in buying a five-bedroom house, which of course got the salespeople very excited. And they said, of course, you come to the, the right place, five-bedroom houses, that's our, you know, that's the, uh, the top of the line. And they said, yes, we'd like five bedrooms and we'd like five bedrooms with en-suites. And at this point, the salesperson looked a bit quizzical and what's, what sort of house, you know, have you got in mind? And of course, what it was, was that the, there were five young Indian couples who actually wanted to live together in order to be able to move into this area where they were part of this broader um, Indian community. And this was a strategy to be able to move into that place. But when you think about it, the five bedroom with ensuite form was essentially them trying to fit in a living pattern into a form that was permissible under our planning, as opposed to a courtyard form which might have a number of small apartments clustered around it, which would be completely anticipated by our planning system and unlikely to be approved, to be, to be blunt. So this question of accommodating different cultures, I think, is a, an interesting one because although we say we have a multicultural society, yes, we embrace the music and the cultural practices and festivals and so forth, but in fact, we somehow expect all that to be accommodated in an Australian urban <laughs> landscape with particular patterns and arrangements and for that matter, particular and very limited range of, of building typologies. And so if to turn it around, if we think that um, the city is simply the manifestation of cultural, economic, geographic, climatic conditions, um, and nothing more and nothing less than that, then the question becomes, have we actually got conditions which would allow new cultural expressions to emerge? And those cultural expressions quite often then come about through transgression. They come about through people bending the rules, breaking the rules. I mean, when you even think about things like granny flats, I mean, what is that? Well, that's, that's someone actually trying to modify their environment to accommodate a change in their living pattern or to accommodate relatives or whatever. It's actually not easily accommodated by the planning system. It's actually the planning system has recognised a desire and need and then been forced to then regularise that or turn it into a, a um, standardised approach, if you will, to accommodate what would otherwise be transgressive. And so when we talk about cultural identities and those cultural identities don't fit comfortably into the physical form of both our cities but also of our houses, I think that's a very interesting question. And I think that it's something that 
needs to be brought to the surface because when we talk about housing diversity, how far can we extend that thinking to actually think about accommodating the emergence of new patterns and then seeing which are desirable or needed and then being agile enough and flexible enough to accommodate those. That was Rod Simpson, the Environmental Commissioner for the Greater Sydney Commission. Allowing for the way new Australians want to live is an interesting task, but in many parts of regional Australia, architects are still working on how to design for first Australians who are living in a westernised urban environment. Sue Dugdale is an architect practising in Alice Springs, one of Australia's most exotic landscapes. Here she tells us about how she works within a community with a mix of strong cultural identities and how that influences her practice. I recently gave a talk about Alice Springs and its cultural identity and the talk was based on a novel called The City and the City by China Mieville. The novel posits this scenario where two cities occupy the same space but the buildings and inhabitants are only in one city or the other. And the inhabitants have to religiously ignore the people in the other city, even though they're passing each other and using the same space. So this was a fertile analogy for Alice Springs. And of course, in Alice Springs, it's the indigenous and the non-indigenous communities, if you like, or populations that really shape this place. So, yeah, in Alice Springs in particular, it was a paradigm where I could look at the built environment of the town as having two towns, one Indigenous, one non-Indigenous, and examine how I conduct my architectural practice in that context. So different, just speaking generally, again, different projects have more or less potential when they arrive at our door of our um, architectural practice. If we're connected to our community and hold the values of equality and fair representation, and cultivate the ability to listen and observe, we can have a go at realising some of this potential for cultural identity and cultural equality. I like to do it often with storytelling or narratives as these can work at multiple levels and be reinterpreted. They can be an open-ended device rather than closed or finite. That was Sue Dugdale from Sue Dugdale & Associates based in Alice Springs. It's understandable that the buildings people use in the centre of a town can become significant to the local community. This can be especially true when it's a pub that's been the home for socialising for over a hundred years. The Guildford Hotel was one of those buildings, and Kylie Shunans from Fratelli Group in Perth tells us about how they were able to successfully translate the cultural identity of an area through the building's restoration. In regards to how we've been able to successfully translate culture and cultural identity into one of our projects. I think the way that we've been able to do it is the redevelopment of heritage buildings. We do quite a few heritage restorations and I love working with old buildings. And the Guildford Hotel is probably one of those good examples for me. So understanding the culture of and the identity of the the town in which we were rebuilding this hotel. It was a historic town and the Guildford Hotel was the heart of that town. It caught on fire in 2008 and remained a vacant burnt out shell for seven years beyond the fire. And there was enormous amounts of public outcry that the building didn't have a roof, the roof was was lost in the fire and quite a bit of public backlash and protests that 
nothing was actually happening on the site. So we got involved because we could see the need for something to happen on the site. And I knew the owners of the hotel. I introduced them to the future tenants and, and helped to build that relationship together. And one of the reasons why the hotel stood vacant for so long was that people came into that space that, you know, were the, the owners were trying to get many people involved. Uh, they couldn't see beyond the burnt out structure. Uh, we came in as architects and were able to sell the idea and the dream to the tenants and they fell in love with that idea and that was what we carried through and to make it the success that it is today. So what about that idea was it that made the project so successful? And that comes back to the, the cultural identity of the space. We recognise that the history of that building was so intrinsic in not only the built form but its value within the community that we really wanted to express that through the reimagining of the hotel itself. And so we recognised that there was not only the history pre-fire but after the fire became quite significant in people's minds. And we really played on that as the idea. And so we, we made sure that the, the reuse of virtually everything that was found within the hotel was reused. It didn't matter what state it was in. So you'll actually be able to walk through the hotel now and you'll see a number of artifacts that are still burnt out. They've been repurposed. The beautiful old Belvedere that was lost in the fire, we've reused some of the twisted burnt steel as, as lighting features over the main bars. The, the burnt timbers that are still expressed throughout there, but then also really played on a lot of the, the history and the heritage that so many of the residents value in that area um, by the installations that we've done with the art pieces, with the interpretive pieces in there. So, and that, that's been really a uh, 360. It's come back around again in terms of the way that the community have really embraced that space. And it's brought the heart back into Guildford, which is, you know, for me, um, architecture and is not just about a building. It's about creating that community and helping to build that cultural identity. That was Kylie Shunans from the Fratelli Group based in Perth. While it's a common occurrence to see old buildings being preserved in Australian cities, being considered old is a relative term. The oldest buildings in Australia coincide with European settlement just over 200 years ago, and while these buildings might be some of the oldest that we have, they exist on the land of a people and culture that some current estimates date back to 60,000 years ago. It's from this standpoint that Peter argues that our collection of heritage European-style architecture was not sensibly introduced into the Australian landscape. Here's Peter Stutchbury on how an appreciation of landscape physiology and landscape spirituality can affect Australian architecture. Architecture happens in probably two main streams, really. The primary stream is historic inheritance and the secondary stream is innovation. But you could say that innovation is cultural awareness, in my opinion. So 
if you are culturally aware, that is, if you are aware of the social and physical patterns of a place, you can make innovative decisions about how you occupy that place. And I think that is the fundamental difference in architecture throughout the world, that there are people who look and think and are responsible, and there are people who create in an independent way. Dependent in the sense that they're using stories of the past, but not cultural, cultural being place, understanding or languages. Now, there'd be a lot of um, criticism of that, and that's okay, criticism is good, but unless you're talking now these days about an international culture, where landscape is irrelevant and technology and um, fashion and, and uh, conservatism are prominent, then that would be a, a different cultural response. That would be a predictable cultural so yeah, response. International competition type, the cultural Interna- An international style. I, I think what you're seeing now is that buildings culturally are international. There's a, there's a big sort of cultural internet and, and they talk about local architecture and they talk about international architecture. The word regionalism has almost disappeared. And you know, I could well be barking up the wrong tree, but I can't possibly do a building without looking at where it's going in all the sort of impacts and influences and guidelines that I've been given by 350, 500 million years of, of information being put into that place. And I just went to a lecture on last Friday where the history of the world goes back 3.2 billion years geologically. And we were here for like, we've been here for, you know, a few thousand years, you know, I mean, 60,000 years at best. And we've in the last 50 years, you know, used 50% of the world's resources. I mean, we're just, we're verging on being ridiculous, really. And, and if you think of an animal, the way an animal occupies a place, they do it understanding where the drainage is because they don't want water down their hole or whatever. They do it understanding where the predators are. So they get in at what, and they do it at least with understanding. We, we do it with, dare I say it, with a degree of ignorance. That was Peter Stutchbury from Peter Stutchbury Architecture, based in Sydney. Architecture in Australia has been focused on a Western perspective ever since European settlement. Even though the majority of Australians celebrate our multicultural history, there has been little recognition of Indigenous design in our buildings. Jeeva Greenaway, Director of Greenaway Architects and the not-for-profit organisation Indigenous Architecture and Design Victoria, is one of a handful of practising registered Indigenous architects in Australia. Here Jeeva tells us about some of the realities of Indigenous culture in Australian architecture and how Indigenous culture can be expressed in our built environment. The question about culture and how it intersects with architecture is a a very live conversation. It's something that I've cogitated on over many decades to think about the role of Indigenous First Nations perspective on the built environment and how our culture can begin to influence the way in which we shape our places and spaces. And it's fair to say that European culture has informed dramatically the built environment. And with that in mind, 
I think there has been seldom amount of attention paid to how we start to think about the contribution of you know, layers of history and memory that connect to this place explicitly rather than importing a, an alternate way of looking at this particular and unique environment. And culture is an interesting question and very much raises questions around identity, about place, about meaning, about people. And I think the time is right now to have these conversations in the Australian context. And in Victoria, particularly where I practice, there is really a, an interrogation around what will the built environment look like in the age of treaty? And does the built environment need to reflect and change to adapt to that potential new reality which is on the cards now? And when I think about culture, Indigenous culture is the oldest continuing living culture in the world. And it's kind of odd that we haven't really reflected that and embedded that as part of our thinking in design practice. And in terms of my practice, I really start to think about it in terms of a relationship to country and understanding the place in which we're located in the first instance. And how do we reflect and embed the diversity of Indigenous voices, understanding that this continent was made up of over 250 distinct language groups. So what that presupposes is an understanding or a need to understand the culture in which you're engaging with and starting with a question of is there an Indigenous story that can be told here in this project, in this location? And if that's the starting point, what processes do we need to undertake to ensure that we facilitate Indigenous agency into projects? So with that, it's really about are we facilitating Indigenous voices into a project? Do we create opportunities around Indigenous enterprise? Do we start to think about normalising a connection to culture through such propositions as the use of language, developing art strategies, developing strategies around wayfinding, looking at the intersection between architecture, landscape architecture, urban design, interior design. So a number of different elements really as a way of infusing projects with a DNA which talks to the deep culture that exists here. And this is our point of distinction. There is a tendency, I think, to the homogenization of the built environment expressions globally. Yet here we have a unique opportunity to foreground our point of difference, which is our longevity, our continuous contribution and occupation, and understanding that we didn't start with a blank slate. We started with a groomed landscape which was manipulated to enable human habitation, and there's a sophistication and an understanding and a connection to many forms of cultural expression, and architecture is just one form of cultural expression. And we often default to sort of standard tropes around Indigenous culture that, you know, Indigenous equals primitivism or Indigenous equals, you know, central desert or dot paintings as the only uh, reference point. But we're getting to a level of cultural maturity where we can start to have conversations and do it in a much more nuanced way. And this is where we start to celebrate our shared humanity and our shared opportunities and how that manifests itself through the built environment is kind of where um, we're heading because there's a huge uptake and interest and appetite among the profession to engage 
in culture, in our Indigenous culture particularly, beyond the stereotypes and the cliches and do it in meaningful ways. And this is where it becomes really interesting because now there's this sort of blend or potential around innovation where we start to fuse you know, deep history with contemporary practice and where they start to collide is where the interesting intersection is starting to happen. And so for me, that relationship to culture in the context of architecture is really powerful. That was Jeeva Greenaway, Director of Greenaway Architects, based in Melbourne. Sibling Architecture, based in Melbourne, dedicates a large amount of their time to research projects. This work allows them to look into technological shifts, social trends and cultural ideas to assess how they affect the spaces we live in. They're always questioning whether or not spaces that are taken for granted are necessarily working as best they can for today's culture. Directors Nicholas Braun, Jane Court and Timothy Moore tell us about how they view architecture's role in culture. I think everyone probably agrees that architecture is obviously a cultural artefact or an outcome of culture inherently connected and um, architects or good architecture should have a stance on culture. And I think as sibling we've been very lucky to be able to explore some of those ideas through a range of different scales, so not necessarily in a building, which often take a long time and the ideas are very slow to sort of come through, so yeah. Uh, it's important to define culture because I think the word culture means different things to different people, whether you're an architect or not. So if you think of the word culture, it's about shared ideas or beliefs that people hold. And if you look at that translated into architecture, you know there could be several examples of that, whether it's a place to share ideas, it's a place to demonstrate shared beliefs, or it could be a, a place to create and consume culture as well or exchange ideas. And I think there's a lot of good examples in Australia of how this is done well. So if you look uh, to uh, the IPH's project, uh, the Cultural Regional Centre in Northam, which is about two hours from Perth, it looks at connecting to country and bringing artefacts from the West Australian Museum back onto country of the Baladong Noongar people. And not only is it about um, Aboriginal authorship within the project and having this culture, deep sense of culture embedded into place, you see architecture also respond to its unique sense of place. So rather than a typical arts, arts museum from a Western perspective, you see the museum um, face away from the colonial grid of the town um, to the river. And also quite peculiarly, the, the building is raised above. And often when I teach students, it's always like, don't have undercover space in that building, but um, it's raised above so the grass can grow and the building almost looks like it's floating in its place as well. I think given that culture is so uh, specific to each region and place, being involved with the community and kind of having those voices present within the design process is super important in being able to, I guess, translate that culture into an architectural outcome and definitely our approach as sibling is to be very involved with those communities and wherever we have a project um, that involves a, a cultural aspect, we will always kind of be on the ground working with those community members to ensure the outcome is the best for that community. And with sibling, we often talk about the social or social spaces, but I guess that translates into culture as well, because even within residential projects that we do, or private projects or commercial projects, we always try and insert an aspect of socialness, you could say, um, where people can exchange and talk and get to know each other. So whether that's um, moving back the threshold um, between you know the edge of a property and the interior of the property is quite important. So even though it's uh, two people talking in this kind of space, I think that's also a place where culture can be exchanged, and that's even important for us on a very uh, human scale 
the scale of the street or the scale of two people talking at a window or on the stairs becomes as important as these large-scale cultural projects as well. But you'll see that in the work of sibling as we move between um, smaller and large-scale projects, you, you'll see different moments where this kind of informal culture can um, manifest as well. That was Nicholas Braun, Jane Court and Timothy Moore from Sibling Architecture in Melbourne. It's true that architects make drawings that buildings can be built from, but making these drawings is only one of the many skills required of an architect. In order to make projects happen with great results, an architecture firm has to collaborate with almost every person involved to make sure everyone is on the same page. People-Oriented Design, based in Cairns, works on a variety of projects, including community projects for people with special needs. Shanine Fanton and Belinda Orwood, directors of People-Oriented Design, describe how architecture can affect people's perception of what a building can be. Well, any project, really, architecture role is complex, but in community projects we engage with multiple cultures and in that role we educate, we negotiate and we interpret but because the built environment affects the way we function as a community, there's also a responsibility for an architect to be an agitator when it's clear that policy or systems of governance are causing an imbalance in social or cultural representation. That's, um, that's interesting, Belinda. I actually also think architecture is a result of culture. It depicts it. Those two things can't be separated. Um, every place, location has its own history and subculture and this is depicted in its architecture which is usually the dominant culture. So for me architecture and culture are not mutually exclusive. I'll give you an example of a um, well-known civic building that's turned perceptions of architectural culture on its head and it's a really obvious one which is ARM's um, National Museum in Canberra. Before that building was built I certainly and many other humans around the world had a perception of what museums might be and look like and feel like in Australia and with the creation of the National Museum in Canberra our preconceptions of what a museum was were completely reframed by that project and reframed in a way that caused a lot of discussion in the community but also reframed it in terms of what Australian culture might be. These types of results in an architectural project require an architect to collaborate and communicate with a large project team and people who belong to the community. Shanine and Belinda explain more. So the need to be culturally sensitive uh, in architecture and the response to culture really must be location specific and be the product of an equitable collaboration with the people of that location, with cultural cultures. The building is designed to serve but we're talking about architecture here, you can extend that thought to um, the, the built environment at large uh, and include urban design and landscape design as well. Culturally sensitive design has to be place specific. Yeah, and I'd completely concur with that. Um, I think what we have to realise in Australia is that the majority of architecture that's been created in Australia is representative of dominant culture, um, European culture, the colonising culture. It may have been adapted or adjusted historically over time for climate and place, but it's still a representation of um, settler culture that exists in Australia. And if you're considering cultural influence or, or the architect's role in culture and considering it in urban areas versus 
regional or remote areas, there, there's uh, quite a, a dichotomy there, I guess, in, in some senses. Uh, urban areas are such a melting pot of culture, yet you're probably getting more homogenisation of, of responses um, in terms of cultural response, whereas where we practice is quite often in reg- regionally or in remote communities where there's less diversity um, of culture but then the the cultural response needs to be so much more specific uh, for those locations as well. As Belinda said before I think architects have a responsibility to be kind of partly protagonists and advocates and certainly to a to reduce the quantity of homogeneity in the world and the effects of globalisation, then we believe that we have a responsibility to bring out culture in projects because that's a diversity that we want to celebrate. That was Shanine Fanton and Belinda Orwood from People Oriented Design based in Cairns. When many people think of cultural buildings, they might think of galleries, theatres and sports stadiums. But for some, the buildings where people practice their religious faith is the centre of their cultural community. Professor Philip Tallis from Hill Tallis Architecture and Urban Planning tells us about the importance of two recent religious buildings that have made a big impact in their communities. Well, obviously, I think architects have an absolutely fundamental role in um, influencing culture because I think our output is fundamentally cultural. So often we're portrayed as being members of the development industry or the building industry and the like. And I think if we narrowly accept such a categorisation, we lose a large part of our authority and role and interest, in fact, because we should be interested in society and the making of the place where society lives. So uh, for me, uh, that's indistinguishable from being an architect. And so I think it's very interesting to think about in terms of buildings. Um, Two buildings which I'm very keen to see as exemplars of cultures are the two mosques that have been done in Melbourne by Glenn Merkett with Alevi and by Angelo Candelapis and his practice in Punchbowl. So I think that they're quite remarkable because they, to my eyes, and the architects might not talk about this as much, but they come from two great traditions of building in the Islamic world. So Glenn's is really the hippie-style mosque, which is a grid mosque with a big courtyard, large capacity, whereas Angelo's is a small urban mosque, a jewel-like. And it's interesting to think about culturally how they've been received. It's been places of faith of other cultures have been resisted by conventional planning and by the Anglo-Saxon bias. And so, for instance, the mosque in Punchbowl has had all sorts of ridiculous uh, difficulties put on it by council in terms of... um, having to provide basement car parking, uh, conditions of consent and the like, uh, because it's in, a, it's in an urban centre, whereas Glen Merkett's mosque is actually effectively an industrial estate, so it's pushed out as if any church has had to go into an industrial estate. So I think it's fantastic to see some of our best ever architects doing su- some of their best work uh, in a cultural setting, and it's very, it really shows the pointy end of... Um, some of the conditions under which we operate. That was Professor Philip Tallis from Hill Tallis Architecture and Urban Planning based in Sydney. From time to time, newspapers will have architecture feature articles that all seem to have strange and wonderful shapes that dazzle the eye and win awards all around the world. But most architects are actually less focused on how a building looks and more on how the building works to serve the public. 
Rob McGoran from MGS Architects tells us about the importance of how a building works over what a building looks like. We have always seen that resonance with people and places, something that we're very interested in. And so that goes to also what is the community in which this project sits, what's the street within it in which it sits. Our work has always been interested in a commentary on the fashion of architecture but is not trying to be fashionable but rather engage in a discourse about that as well. And so for us very much anchored in the I suppose the subculture of Melbourne in part, but informing work around Australia and some of those insights we've drawn from that deeper dive into our local culture and place to undertake that. This was most recently illustrated in MGS's design for Ozenham House, a world-class support and accommodation hub in North Melbourne. I think our recent work for Vincent Care uh, opposite the Children's Hospital has been a very interesting one for us because that's talked to us about the values of Melbourne. I mean, if you think about early settlement in Melbourne was where you had groups such as the discussion about we will not have people homeless in this city back in early settlement of of the colony here and Booth heading back to the UK from uh, this place with those values to set up the Salvation Army, but having the Gordon House and those sorts of places and and the Salvation Army premises in the top end of Burke Street in that early days before around Gold Rush. That has, I suppose, anchored the underlying purpose of the Osmond House redevelopment opposite the kids. And then also wanting that building to create a valuable legacy uh, for that part of Melbourne with the children's hospital opposite, but one that spoke to both its neighbourhood and its role as a place of regenerating wellbeing and lives for people in the same way that children's is regenerating the health and wellbeing of kids. That was Rob McGoran from MGS Architects, based in Melbourne. Apartment buildings are showing up in more places around Australia as our population steadily grows, bringing more housing density to the inner suburbs. On the other end of the spectrum, many people are still moving further away from our cities and deeper into the outer suburbs for cheaper housing. In Australia, this has led to only an estimated 5-10% to of single residential homes being architect-designed, according to a 2015 IBIS World Report. This style of living, which was preferred in the 1950s and 60s, is now connected to greater amounts of traffic congestion, social isolation and negative environmental impacts. Jane Weatherall, director of With Architecture Studio, tells us about how our culture will be viewed when we look back at this period in time. It's evident um, now that we're in it, but it will be even more evident um, when we look into this period from the future, that our culture in Australia, particularly Western Australia, is very defined by our obsession with the suburbs and with the project homes. And when I say obsession, I'm not actually talking it down. I think it's the reason so many people identify um, what an amazing culture we have and want to come here 
there's so many people that want to live in Australia and our suburbs and our project homes are really defining who we are at the moment. I think we're on the cusp so that's actually part of so many discussions and we've reached the limit where we can't keep going in this direction so something's going to have to change but for the moment I think we're still there in that a project home delivers to our culture who have expressed that they value not living on top of each other, having their own space, privacy, small communities and they have chosen to drive long distances instead of be close to hubs and so forth. So, And then one looks at a suburb and what other components of architecture are available to us there. So schools is one and we're the, very involved in delivering education projects and that's probably one of the few building typologies in the suburbs where there is actually free reign to explore some architectural um, endeavours. Shopping centres I suppose are another um, building typology but much more commercially driven and commodified and not as much scope to explore architecture. Yeah, so I think the suburbs and the, the small group of built buildings that make up the suburbs are an interesting area to view our culture from. That was Jane Weatherall, Director of With Architecture Studio, based in Western Australia. The impact that architecture can have on culture doesn't just rely on what large-scale buildings bring to our cities, but what about the culture of our homes? Northern Territory-based architect Jo Rees tells us about the benefits of connecting her clients to their outdoor spaces and taking advantage of Australia's moderate climate. Absolutely. Incredible difference that we can make to people's lives, making them able to enjoy a veranda or a balcony or, a, or looking at a garden in ways that they would not have thought of before. And framed, you know, beautiful framed views. So it doesn't always have to be big, sometimes it can be a small opening, but it's that connection that we can really enhance, I think, with our ability to imagine what can be more than other people who are not trained to do that. So there was one project I had many years ago, which you're probably familiar with, and it was on top of a hill in a rural setting and the client was an American who came from a cold climate. And initially what he was interested in doing was making this great big sprawling building with a sunken lounge and a spa bath in the lounge and a movie theater and all super relative to a cold climate. (laughs) Not here really for the sort of things that he was talking about. Anyway, we eventually unpacked all of these ideas of how did he actually want to live in the landscape and he'd been living in Australia for a year or two and was just really beginning to relate to the wildlife and the climate so it was it was a huge journey to go through with him over a project a project that took two years from initial discussions to the completion of the building what we ended up with was a fully sustainable only solar-powered rainwater tank property, beautiful views in an area that was prone to, or is prone to bushfires. So we are on top of a hill quite vulnerable. So we ended up putting um, a quite 
elevated series of pavilions connected by walkways and the pavilions because there's lots and lots of bugs out there pavilions had screening all the way around them but inside uh, the bedroom wing pavilions the bedrooms had bifolding doors that would open up onto the expanded veranda deck that was enclosed in uh, screening yeah so that worked really well and in fact it's now an airbnb and i stayed there three weeks ago with some friends and it's just delightful the views are amazing you get this great breeze that was probably the greatest climatic interactive building that I worked on in a way with the cultural journey too, which is interesting. That was Joe Reese from Ajar Architects based in Northern Territory. It's true that on the surface, architects design buildings. But as we've heard, the considerations that go into that design can achieve many things that we can't see. Connection to history, recognition of a community, developing new ways of working, reconnecting with the landscape, or providing the human right to shelter. Dick Jarman, Associate Director of Circa Morris Nunn Architects in Hobart, proposes that architecture creates the clothes that history wears. Here, he talks about how architecture can be a strong part of culture without that outcome being part of the design process. I think Australian buildings aren't deliberately designed to be culturally significant, typically in an iconic sense of way. I think that they're often built to be fit for purpose in, in other ways. There's not often are you actually asked to build something to represent nationhood or culture per se. That's often not part of the brief. It's more of an individual brief of performance for the hospital or for the house for the person. But there are those projects which are the Federation Squares, the Opera House, uh, or exhibition buildings, such as at Expo, where you do have to consider what the, the national cultural identity is. And they're, they're very, very difficult ones to, to design. Uh, I think there are some exemplar projects in that case of, let's say, the Opera House is very much one of those buildings which was designed when we were coming of age culturally. We were cutting the aprons of the mother country, supposedly, of England, and we were moving towards having our own identity. A lot of people question when Goosen's asked uh, to have an opera house, why were we ready, should we have one, and why in such an important cultural position as Benelong Point. This has been the first episode of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. This episode of Hearing Architecture featured the following guests. Damien Madigan, Rod Simpson, Sue Dugdale, Kylie Shunans, Peter Stutchbury, Justin Carrier, Stephen Posmus, Nicholas Braun, Jane Court, Timothy Moore, Shanine Fanton, Belinda Orwood, Professor Philip Tallis, Joe Reese, Rob McGoran, Jeeva Greenaway, Jane Weatherall, Dick Jarman and Andrew Maynard. The interviews in this episode were produced around Australia by Imagine Committee members. Jamila Jahangiri, Daniel Hall, Kirsty Voles, Callie Marnane, Chris Morley, Sam McQueenie, Reese Curry, Brad Weatherall, Jess Beaver, Bede Taylor, Rebecca Webster and Daniel Moore. The AIA production team was Daniela Crawley, Stacey Rodder, Monique Woodward and Tom McKenzie. Produced by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. 
This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.